Well, hello and welcome along to another episode of the Mild Mannered Army podcast with me, Paul Laird, or Mild Mannered Max, if we must. And on today's show, I'm joined once again by my friend James Cook. James has a new book about to be released called In Her Room. More than one in a hundred people in the UK have an autism diagnosis, and that works out at about 700,000 people. And I would think that most of us will know someone who is autistic or know someone who is involved in some way in the life of an autistic individual. Autism itself is a disability and it's something that affects, in very simple terms, the way that people perceive the world and the way that people interact with others. It's not an illness, it's not a disease and it isn't something to be cured. Many autistic people see their diagnosis as a key part of who they are. Often autistic people have difficulties in communication, particularly in social settings. So things like facial expressions, tone of voice, jokes, sarcasm may not be picked up on or even understood. But in rarer cases, some autistic people are also non-verbal, which brings with it another layer of challenges for the people who are involved in their lives. And it's this particular form of autism that James has first-hand experience of and that forms the focus of this book in her room. And so, James, thank you for joining me. Hi, Paul. Hi. Thank you for inviting me back. That was a great summary. I think you've just busted pretty much all the autism myths there in one go in in your introduction there. Maybe we should start with that. If I take you back to before, we'll we'll get to how you're involved with uh, autism in, in just a second. But I wonder, before autism found its way into your life, was it something that you were aware of? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And I and I um I, I make a point of of mapping the journey to that sort of awareness uh, in real time in the book. So so it is a, a conversion narrative. Uh, it, it it maps out the first. It, it's kind of a developmental biography of my daughter uh, from age one to three and a bit beyond she's five and a half now and within those years of one to three that's when the, the we had the the diagnosis so as you know many autism parents were probably finding you know if they're in that situation now is that you, you want a complete bewilderment because you don't you you don't know what autism is and why would you you know I had so so I I, I map my complete ignorance <laughs> Ignorance is the only word. Ignorance of the the of the of the condition and how how I learned about it, which is just a rag bag of you know what every parent will do. You go straight away to the internet. Uh, you know you Google the condition and then you start to to read the books and the same titles keep cropping up. And that was where I started to you know learn more. And I'm you know that, that, being a writer, I that's where I'd sort of naturally lean to. I know it's not everyone's thing, you know, especially if you, your kid is smashing up the front room. Um, so it's easy for me to say that, but I think that the, the sort of ad hoc way, the cornerstones of the the information about the condition which you set out just in your introduction there can be sort of gathered. And it's a sort yeah, it's a, it's a really chaotic process, but but you get there in the end if you if you really want to understand your your child. What's interesting there for me, James, is the fact that you you mentioned the fact that the the book maps this journey your experience with your own daughter and her diagnosis, and you you talk about going from age one to three. And I think that will surprise a lot of people, right, that a diagnosis can come quite so early. Um, But in fact, 
you know, you can have a diagnosis even earlier than one. You know, sometimes from as early as 10 months, experts in this field are able to kind of diagnose it. So I wonder, what were the warning signs? What were the things that made you seek some sort of help, which ultimately led to this diagnosis? That's right. As you, as you say, you know, the, the phrase that keeps coming up a lot when you read about autism is, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Well, and it's, <laughs> it's a truism, it's a cliche, and there's all those, there's all you know, cliches tend to have a grain of truth. Uh, and that's exactly what you find right from the earliest stage. So you can have, you know, children that are uh, very precocious physically at the age of two uh, and also verbally. Or you can, as in my daughter's case, uh, she was very delayed in, in hitting all her milestones from, from about the age of 10 months to a year you know, we started to notice making comparisons with other children that she was, it was the physical stuff first, because she had what, what we were told by a paediatrician when we finally got a, a, an appointment, something called global developmental delay, which just means that hitting all her milestones, you know, physical, social, uh, will take place a lot longer, you know, will take a lot longer to, 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 to occur than other children. So she had help well, I wouldn't say help that that came later she was we were sort of plugged into that system uh, very early so in that sense we were very lucky now if you've got as I said you know a, sort of children a, a child that's very sort of precocious you know you might think well wow you know this this this, this kid's going to be a genius and, and and but at that point in time that's the worst thing to think because they're not getting interventions that they might need so so yeah we because um Emily, um, uh, that's not her real name, Emily, as she is in the book, uh, was very, very behind on everything. You know, we were able to go and um, discuss this with with uh, health professionals pretty early on. Well, you mentioned the idea that people may think because their child is particularly or peculiarly uh, precocious. It does make me think about maybe some of the damage that something like Rain Man did for the autistic community because that's still lurking in the background right that, that people have this view that autistic people are in some ways and I guess it's true in some cases but that that's another cliche right another stereotype that you know they're going to be very very gifted in, in some particular field exactly exactly uh, and this that's that's sort of you know myth number four sort of um tackled really Rain, Rain Man was actually very good in a lot of ways it was good and bad um I I write about this talk about this in the book that you know I went back and rewatched the film it's very accurate actually Dustin Hoffman is incredible um also Tom Cruise you know the way they handled you know you saw the brother Tom Cruise starting to understand his brother's autism um so it opened up very early on a, a sort of big chapter of autism awareness so, so it was good in that sense however <laughs> And you're absolutely right here. What everyone remembers from the film is Dustin Hoffman's Raymond Babbitt's um, superpower, his his <laughs> facility with numbers. So it, it sort of followed people. I mean, I understand why people need a hook. And I, I write in the book as well, you know, being a, being a twin, an identical twin, I, I understand it because people are always asking, are, are you telepathic? You know, and the answer is no. <laughs> so, you know, at, Yes, it's true. You, some autistic people have incredible 
talents, savant talents, um, often including numbers and things like that. So it's it's there, it can be there, but but that that is also that has been quite a damaging assumption that that every uh, person with autism will, will have these these skills. I think um, Charlotte Moore, who wrote an excellent book called George and Sam about her two autistic boys and she said that this special skill people seem to need this to sort of validate their autism which is quite sad in a way but um it's just a, i think it's just a foible of human nature and and it is one of those myths that that um that i'm trying to set out to to bust in the book and 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 this week as well autism awareness week can you maybe say something james about what it was like when you got the diagnosis of autism was there relief because now you had some way of explaining some of the challenges that you were experiencing or did it come as a sort of crushing blow to have a label attached to emily because as, as, as you rightly point out autism it's not an illness it's not a disease with a known biological agent it's a condition it's a uh, an innate condition so there's no blood test you know there's no uh, an autism diagnosis is just really somebody's opinion or a, or a sort of coalition of people's opinions and they it's it's they're pretty infallible actually there's not there's not that much um misdiagnosis going on because the the tests are extremely involved so it was a long process because we were looking um and again i i, I track this in real time in the book there were so many red herrings going on you know there was the thought that there might have been a lack of oxygen at birth, it might be brain damage, you know, then one of the, one of the, uh, on route to an autism diagnosis, you're looking at lots of ruling out a lot of things. It's a process of elimination. So we had to, via genetic tests, rule out a lot of the syndromes, such as Rett syndrome, Angelman syndrome, Fragile X, and all these were gradually ruled out. So at the end of the day, you had what the professionals um, suspected all along, which was which was autism. Um, and as you say, this 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 came pretty, you know, at the age of two and a half, that's pretty early. You know, they also they have a sort of a few trigger points after that, not hedging their bets. But they the, at the age of three, I think they can. Um, and this is only in Germany, because this is where we ended up um, at the time of the diagnosis that, that that it's then can be said to be a disorder, quote unquote. Um, and at the age of four, they sort of finally give you their opinion on whether it's um, low functioning or high functioning, which, again, is a whole nother can of worms. <laughs> I don't like that. I don't like that definition at all. Uh, I prefer profound because because my daughter is on that. She's nonverbal. So she's on the so-called low functioning end of the, the spectrum. But just a quick just a quick word about labels here. It's very yeah. interesting. So, so your instinct as a parent is not to have your child labeled. And I think this this is very early on. And I would say, and I don't like giving advice, really, but to any autism parent listening, you need to get past that stage of not liking labels pretty quickly, because what labels give you are interventions and therapies and help, you know, um, funded assistance. So as soon as you can, you, you know, uh, you want you want to find out what the label is. And that's that's where the. Uh, uh, that's when the, the sort of gates open uh, for, for you to, to apply the help. That's really great because 
I think you're right. I think there there are two ways of, of viewing these things. You know, to, to give people some context for why I've got a particular interest in speaking to you about this as well, James. I obviously work with a, a lot of young people who are autistic. Um, I work in a comprehensive school and we have a a bit of a reputation for being the sort of go-to comprehensive school in my city for children who are autistic. So I I have a lot of experience with with autistic kids and my wife works in a special needs school. Um, And so I think you're right. I think that's the thing is is to get away from the idea that labels have some kind of negative uh, connotations. I mean, they do. You know, nobody likes a label, right? We all want to think of ourselves as being, you know, free of that. But you're right, the, the label is the passport to the sorts of interventions and yep. the sorts of supports that, that you need, not not just that you want, but you actually need. So I right. think that's a great message to get out there. Well, you, you touched on it there, James, about the notion that Emily is non-verbal. Now, despite the fact that I've had some experience of working with young people who are autistic, I have to say to you that when I first heard you use that phrase, I think it was the last time we spoke, but after we'd stopped recording, I thought to myself, in my head, I had an image of an elective mute, somebody who was choosing not to speak. And I've worked with kids who are elective mutes. And while that's frustrating for everybody involved, those kids are able to sort of carry on and function, forgive me for using this phrase, in a normal way, right? Or in a way that's more socially recognisable. There we go. Sure. but being non-verbal is not that. So could you say something about the nature of being non-verbal? Yeah. So I believe, you know, you can have up to 200 words as a child, sort of pre five and still be uh, sort of classed as, as non-verbal. Um, those words might not be able, they might not be able to put them into sentences. Uh, but they still have the words to sort of, you know, for for something that they want to demonstrate choice. But in in my daughter's case, she doesn't have any recognisable words at all. So she has no, or until very recently, had, had no other form of communication to assist with that. There is in, in my book, at the end of the book, <laughs> uh, in the epilogue, and, and I hope people don't skip the epilogue because it's 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 probably the, the bit of the book that I'm I'm proudest of they I, I go into what I call the science bit not, not not in wanting to sort of undermine it in any way but I go into reasons possible theories why she might be non-verbal one theory is is that children with autism severe or profound autism are hearing all sounds at once they're using their survival ambient hearing so everything is equal and you can't dis- they can't um figure out what to discard and what to keep so kids you know latch onto these phonemes these distinct units of sound within words um and they filter out others from other languages so that's how they build language so if you're being constantly bombarded by a wall of sound that you can't um differentiate between then you're not going to pick up on these phonemes. Now, that is just one theory, but I think it's quite a convincing theory. Uh, and, and it's one that, that goes hand in hand with the music aspect. And when I started to play music, that this seemed to be switching off the barrage of sensory information or not switching it off exactly, but sort of lessening it. Um, I think um, 
you you do you know the the phrase the the effective filter yeah yeah what what it is is very it's a very crude analogy that i i use but i think it's right because if you have the effective filter in a classroom i think is when you have say a car alarm outside or a drill or it's too hot so the students can only are, are pretty are underperforming. They're, they're learning sort of maybe 20, 30% of what they could be learning if there was a calm environment. Now, this I think is 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 a good analogy for what is happening with uh with the the autistic system is that there's so much going on, it's not processing the information um appropriately. So they and this is having an aspect an adverse aspect on, on learning. And, and and music uh seems to um help with this. Well, that's the other aspect of the book that you're hitting on there, James, which is how you've been able to use music to communicate, I guess, again, for want of a a better phrase, with Emily when she is nonverbal. I wonder, was there a particular moment or a particular song or piece of music or a particular sign from Emily that led you to realise that you could use music in that way. Yes, yes, and it was um, it was Pink Floyd's "Wish You Were Here," uh, <laughs> which I don't have a problem with. Great song, and I was playing the song. I mean, there wasn't really a eureka moment. It'd be unfair to say that. I, I sort of I I focus on this in the book because I think what 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 was happening. Okay, a bit of backstory story to it. What what happened was that we um, a- a- Emily was born in uh uk we after about a year we moved to um germany to sort of you know have a sort of fresh start and and at that point no one had mentioned autism and uh, you know emily had just her her she just learned to crawl and walk within the space of two weeks when she was 18 months old so we were thinking wow she's she's getting better you know we we weren't really thinking about her cognition and her her you know the the um the, the the non-physical aspects of her development so so we went to, to 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 germany and she seemed with her new found freedom she was getting more and more happy to be on her own in her own company so she'd be quite content to wander from room to room bashing a plastic shaker up and down and you know she'd never responded to her name uh but she was seemed to be becoming more and more sort of independent but insular and I later found out this is quite, you know, when physical sort of developments occur, this is this is what often what happens with autism. So still not knowing anything about autism, had no pediatrician or doctor used that word at all. I would sort of, you know, while she was, you know, running around in the room, chucking toys around because she still she got frustrated with toys. She didn't really do toys. I would play, start playing some tunes on the acoustic. And uh, I was playing Wish You Were Here. And, you know, I was struck, obviously, by, by the obvious irony of the, the title. You know, I wish she was here, you know, because she didn't. She seemed to be absent much of the time. But I noticed when I started playing the song that um, she was here, present, at least when the music played, because she her frustration with toys would de- de- decrease slightly. And then she'd sort of turn around and give me a little glance, a little checking glance, a little smile. Like, oh wow you, you are you are listening i was looking in all the wrong places you know and that was that was in that was in the song um uh, wish you were here that that must have been I, I don't want to be overly soppy about it james but 
you know, if you're not normally getting that level of connection, if you're feeling that your child isn't present, to have had that connection in that instant, that must have been a very moving experience. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we were, de- we were desperate, you know, to get any any sort of reciprocal response, really, because I think we or I, not knowing anything about autism, just expected expected that of a, of a child or, or, or of a fellow human being. You know, this is how we, one of the riffs in the book is, is, is the, uh, the, the, the fact that everything we do is so social, so performative. Often in people or children with autism, this this social instinct is is lacking. Big autism myth coming up. Um, this doesn't equal a lack of empathy. It's a really it's very hard to get your head around at first, and I I, I did struggle with it. And what it is is that there's there's a there's a so-called theory of mind or um, that the children with autism have a mind blindness so they don't really care that much what's what you're thinking now that doesn't well what it leads to is, is a myth that that, that um, people with autism are somehow uh, cool or aloof or unfeeling and nothing could be further from the truth I think what you find is that there, there are many um, autistic people with a surfeit of, uh, of empathy, but they're just unable to show it. And once you sort of crack that conundrum, you know, it, it, I mean, it's so hard for us as, as social anim- animals to get our heads around that. But I think, you know, and, and also I think there, there, there was a riff that I, I discarded from the book, um, but it was a whole semantic riff on on the difference or the similarities between empathy and sympathy. OK, so this is, it, you know, it's solemn stuff. Yeah, it's serious stuff. It's it's big stuff, you know, as, as big as it gets, really. But I think if there's no humour there, then you haven't got the truth of it, really. And I think when, you know, when I say to people, people ask me about uh, my daughter and I say she's, you know, she's profoundly autistic, a, a sort of very serious look um, <laughs> appears on their face, you know. And as it should do. But also I say, well, she's profoundly autistic, but she's also profoundly fantastic. You know, we, we, she's great company. You, you, you'd like her. <laughs> you know, I really say that we have a lot of fun. You know, now it's important just to just to um, just to put that that across as well so that it all doesn't become, you, you know, no, I mean, this is this. It's such everything around autism is such a tightrope to walk because you know there are sugar-coated accounts of autism which are also wrong it's both you know and this is it's just one paradox after another really i'm finding on this um this uh this journey i think you're absolutely right james and i'm very glad that you've opened up the the, the conversation for us to acknowledge both aspects of this it's it's very difficult you know it's, it's difficult for people who are not in the situation to know how to respond appropriately I mean, my personal experience is one of the things that I wanted to share with you and to get your thoughts on was I've just had a a pupil who's about to leave school, who obviously we can't name for obvious reasons. But when he arrived in my class in his third year at high school, this kid had an autism diagnosis um, and had really struggled uh, in the first two years of high school. And I'll, I'll, I'll maybe get to that in just a second, actually. And one of the things I like to do with the kids at school is to really play devil's advocate, right? I feel like there's a bit of a an accepted way in which 
things are presented in schools, particularly when it comes to politics. So that's my subject. I teach politics. So quite often I take a, a moderately conservative view on things, right? Just to kind of stir things up a little bit. Yeah. And this was around about the time that Trump had just been elected. So I'd taken this very kind of, you know, well, is Trump really all that bad kind of approach in the class to stoke a little bit of conversation and debate and discussion? And as ever, when you're in that situation with a group of teenagers, most of the people in the room, no matter what you say, look at you like a dog that's been shown a card trick. <laughs> and the only person who engaged with this stuff was this young kid with the autism diagnosis. And he loved it. He loved it. He saw the whole thing as this, you know, battle of intellects between he and I. And he would go away and find, you know, whatever terrible thing it was that Trump had said the previous day and bring back some newspaper article and debate and debate and debate. And every day when he would be debating with me, he would stop and say, well, I better stop now because I can tell that everybody else is getting really fed up with this. Hmm. And I would say to him every single day, no, no, no that's not it. That's not how this operates. That's not how this functions. You're debating. This is real education. This is how we learn things, is by debate and discussion and taking oppositional views. So we had this great relationship over this two-year course. Now he's just about to leave, and I got an email uh, two nights ago uh, from this kid saying, I've attached an essay that I've written for English, and he had to write a reflective essay. And he talked about in this essay, his first two years at high school, and some of the things that he had done, you know, he'd decided in his head that he was going to use high school as a new opportunity, a fresh start. He was going to be a different person. And then had got to high school and realised that actually he couldn't do that. He, he wasn't coping. So he'd gone on to reduce timetable. He'd And the thing that he said was that when he came into my class, he found for the first time that he was able to put this aspect of his personality, this aspect of him being autistic, to the forefront. And all of a sudden, it was a positive. That ability to focus in on things, you know, to be almost obsessive, right, which is kind of a, another aspect of the, the condition that people do tend to hone in on, on certain things at certain times. And it shifted his whole relationship to school, and it shifted his whole approach to his studies. And we developed this very odd relationship where I would call him a sort of nickname version of his name, which I won't reveal here, obviously. And he <laughs> he developed this thing where he would walk past me in the corridor, pat me on the head and call me Lairdo. And it, <laughs> it was like the most inappropriate you know, thing for a pupil to be doing to a teacher. But I loved it. I just thought this was great. You know, here was this kid who had struggled through two years of high school and probably seven years of primary school, but now was able to give a high five, pat an adult on the head, make some jokey remark, you know, and it was just wonderful. You know, and now he's he's heading off to university and he's got his whole life in front of him. Wonderful. That's amazing. That's amazing. I think that, yeah, that's very, very... Um, it's a very good point because that that sort of uh, ability or you know original thought it's not it's not really what what you're um, what you're asked to to to, to present um, you know when, as you say when you go to secondary school high school that's not really you're you're there really to pass exams 
So what he was doing in those early discussions with you was demonstrating his uh, incredible ability to think, you know, to use the cliche outside of the box, uh, (laughs) many, you know, like, you know, the, the Silicon Valley hackers that can hold dozens and hundreds of pieces of information in their minds like as as visual symbols you know dozens of pieces of code i mean this is you know that's one of the sort of classic uh, autism occupations um but but if the similar sort of thing is happening to be able to reason and debate and to, to to show uh or use original thought um i mean it must have been sort of quite liberating for him i was just my question actually was when you know was he bullied because of that no, no, no. I think his behaviour was, and I, I think you might be able to empathise if we can go back to that word for a second. His behaviour was so extreme in certain situations in school. He wasn't ever non-verbal, but he certainly found it difficult to a control his emotional reactions towards things and b to interact in any meaningful sense with his peer group. And I think his behaviours were so extreme that it almost acted like a a shield. You know, the, the, the kids kind of backed off. Um, you know, for all that kids can be cruel, I think when they see genuine pain and hurt and suffering in somebody, mm, you know, they, they, they find that quite disconcerting. I think that's what happened with him. I think that the, the kids found it quite unsettling to see some of these extreme behaviours, and so they just kept their distance. But, but the, the, the incredible thing there, though, is, James, is that that also has now passed. He's a prefect in school. He has a peer group. You know, the other kids enjoy his company. Um, you know, he's still grown and blossomed, right? And I, th- I think that's another one of the myths, the idea that, you know, autism is it, that, that that's it. You know, that the way you are is the way that you are always going to be. And while there's no cure, it is possible for people to go on and lead very happy, successful, fulfilled, independent lives with autism. It's not a solid box. Would that be a fair statement? Yeah, it's a, that's a great statement. I mean, I think it's, it's you know, the uh, th- that sort of potential or, or their gain, using the word there and them, I'm just generalising yeah. massively, but, you know, the, 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 it's, it's how long is a piece of string. It really is. I think one of the sad things about the sort of benighted era just prior to this so we'd be talking 50s 60s and 70s maybe even the 80s where you know a child was seen to have a learning disability or to be autistic and so they just you know in any sort of educational setting or purpose they were just given up on and I think what's what's happened there's a great documentary by Oliver Sacks and he's uh his subject is um a woman called Jessie, who was Clara Claiborne Park's daughter, uh, and she wrote about her in, in her book Siege. Anyway, so Jessie in this film, she's 37, and she's just, she's shown discovering a sense of embarrassment only at that age. <laughs> you know, it took till she was 37. So what Sachs sort of says is that look, it seems like autism is is something where brain maturity just keeps evolving. You know, in, in a neurotypical brain, say, you know, all those early social things are kind of done and dusted by the age of three to five. You know, the brain is still plastic, but it's still those sort of things that, you know, the, 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 the sort of the, the thing, the, the just those sort of things taking root take place very early. But with, with autism, you know, you, you can see 
developmental milestones being achieved way, way into adulthood, you know. This undoubtedly is going to be the wrong word. It's such a strange condition, autism, because of some of the things that you're hinting at here, James, that it is impossible to say they and them about the autistic community because while there are universals that allow the diagnosis to take place, even those universals can manifest in different ways and to different extents. Um, and I, That has been my experience whenever I've had the opportunity to work with, with young people who have a diagnosis, is that there are only very slim similarities between them, which is funny, right? Because you and I don't have a diagnosis and there are only slim similarities between us. It's ex- that's exactly the point. I think that's the, the the hardest thing, and it's 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 really difficult for parents who are, are in this sort of bewildered, anxious state. Um, they're looking for you know um, very concrete sort of concrete signs and indications that their child is either on or off the spectrum. So it does go back to that that truism. When you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. It's very. I, I think the thing is is that you've got to be ready. For, for paradoxes is um henry normal uh in his book a normal family which is a, is a beautiful book uh about his son who's 20 now it says you need a sort of orwellian double think to get your head around the fact as a parent that you know you obviously don't want your child to suffer to have a disability yet that disability eventually becomes them it becomes their you know part of their personality it becomes who they are it's a very difficult thing and i think you've got to you know autism it's it, in a way it's its own worst enemy as you say it's it's a, it's a shapeshifter it's a trickster once you think you've got it you know when in the early days with with emily i was looking at the sort of you know the, these are these are the 10 or 20 sort of you know signs and symptoms and i was thinking well she's got it she's got about half of them but then half of them she hasn't it's not helpful for 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 a worried parent um and this is what i try to do hopefully a bit in the book to to take people who who are on that journey uh now and and show them that actually this 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 is this is normal <laughs> your your response to this is completely uh fine um it's it is confusing <laughs> you know there's there's a point there as well i think when you think about the the indicators, for want of a better word, with, with autism. You know, if you were going to go through the checklist to get her diagnosis, you're saying Emily has about half of them when she's getting her diagnosis. Well, it would be quite possible for you and I probably to pick up on at least some of them, right? We, we would probably be able to tick off some of those autistic indicators in our own personalities. Um, you know, so it's, it's not that, you know, these are personality traits or... Uh, ways of dealing with the world that are peculiar only to autistic people you know that that's for me an interesting aspect of it as well you know i know lots of people who are have obsessive personalities i know lots of people who find it difficult to you know keep eye contact i know lots of people who find it difficult to form relationships with people or you know to interact in in a again it's that one normal way so I, i think that's part of the the process that has to happen in society, right, is to break down this idea that there is something wrong with, well, I guess, anybody with a disability. But for autism, there's something wrong, because some of those things that are wrong are also wrong in ourselves. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think 
it's again this 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 is um quite sort of difficult territory because because I would say maybe most, I mean, and again, generalizing people have neurotypical and neurodivergent traits, um, which is not the same thing as saying, oh, everyone's on the spectrum, which again is a myth or something, a, a misconception yeah. you hear a lot, uh, along with, uh, oh, so-and-so, so-and-so is on the spectrum, you know, which is a bit of a casual, sort of not very helpful remark. So there's there's some truth in that but it's 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 not you know again it's it's not that helpful i think what i'm trying to do in the book is is what you've exactly just said there that these um the very sort of uh outward be i mean take stimming for example which, which comes from um self-stimulating which are the sort of flapping uh, the rocking, the humming, the sort of these kind of characteristic hand movements that you see a lot in, in um, people with autism. What I wanted to do in the book is is to say that these uh, behaviours are absolutely normal. Again, use that word, are absolutely normal for for that system because the the sensory information that is coming in are causing these stims which are which are basically just behavior that is is dependable that is the same it's repetition re- repetitive movements and it's to humanize my my aim with the book is is to 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 make human behavior that 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 people might see as bizarre or or odd or threatening or frightening and that was my whole um message <laughs> I, I hesitate to use message because do you remember in the eighties and nineties whenever you were interviewed a band they would ask a band what's your message you know <laughs> <laughs> you know apart from the Manics we we had a great message or many messages but I think you know if there is a message it's to it's to it's to show um, my daughter as a person it sounds like a very basic thing to say but I think as she gets older. You know, there's a lot of behaviour that that society be, excuses in children. That is, they find it hard to excuse as children get older. And and this is this is you know a big concern as a parent that I show. I mean, my my original idea for this book. I mean, there's no you know as I say, I've changed her name and there are no photographs. But my original notion was that as sort of instinct as a parent was that that everyone would get to know Emily. There goes Emily the autistic girl you know because and you know that that they'd see this book had been written about her uh, as a very cute sort of three-year-old when she's 23 it might be a different story so I wanted to show that the the humanity the person that was there it sounds sounds like a very basic thing to say but that that was that was my sort of impulse one of the impulses behind writing the book and that was the end of my conversation with James His new book, In Her Room, is available now from Blink. You can order a copy from blinkpublishing.co.uk. It really is a very moving, very personal and very honest account of James's experience of being the parent of an autistic daughter. I couldn't recommend it enough. I'd like to thank James for his time and thank you for listening. Take care. Stay safe.